Bibles. Everybody say word. You all knew better than that. Come on. Yeah. Let's get in the word. 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. I love the little ones in here. Hey, mom, dad, do not feel like people are listening or looking back at you. It's always louder for mama. Okay? But you're doing great. Oh, that little one. Isn't he beautiful? Uh-huh. What is his name? Braxton, that's right. Hi, Braxton. Hi, buddy. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Sorry, I've got... I just love the littles. Uh, 2 Samuel, which is a huge surprise because we have five kids. So um, last week, <laughs> I begin with, it began with a very pointed question. Have you ever done something wrong? And I don't mean just like wrong. I mean, have you ever done something bad? Like, really bad. Like, want to bury it under 16 tons of concrete, never to see the light of day again. Bad. Well, we witnessed last week one of the most tarnished and troubling portraits that hang in the hall of faith. And, and really what it does is it forces us to, like, look at our own hall of faith and to come face to face with some of the more troubling portraits that hang in ours. We saw this portrait of David and Bathsheba. J. Vernon McGee, writing regarding chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, he says this, In chapter 11, we saw David's sin and all of its grossness and ugliness. The Word of God does not soft-pedal it. The Word of God does not whitewash David's actions. His sin is as black as ink and as dark as night and as low as the underside of Satan and the bottomless pit and as deep as hell itself. David sinned. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is one of the more troubling chapters in the scriptures in a sense because it stretches our understanding of, of how we can do some really sin-sick things. It is also a chapter that is going to stretch our understanding of God's forgiveness and His grace. And so I believe after chapter 11, it was David's full intention to bury the chapter 11 of his life under 16 tons of concrete, never to see the light of day again. But God in his grace provides a God-sized shovel to dig it up. And God's in the business of doing that, by the way. God has a way of digging up things that we would just as soon forget about. And I'll be honest with you, I think that's exactly what's happening in our culture. God has taken out a God-sized shovel and has dug up the social injustice and the inequity uh, that has been between races and the, the disparity that we're seeing reflected by the cries of our people. God has dug it up with a big, giant, God-sized shovel. Because time does not make sin go away. Now that is on a, a community sense, that is on a cultural sense, but more importantly this morning, what we're focusing on is on a personal sense. Time does not make it go away. And so we're not really sure how much time passes between chapter 11 and chapter 12, but I'm willing to bet it's somewhere around a year. The child that has been born of the adulterous act is, is like I said, he's been born. David has taken Bathsheba to be his wife. And during that time, it was not a good time, it was not a good year for David. 
You know, God will allow us to fall into sin, but he will not allow us to enjoy it. I believe Psalm chapter 32 verses 3 and 4 captures well David's year-long experience, as does Psalm 51 we will look at. But in Psalm 32, he says this, For when I kept silent, when I kept it concealed, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. So if Psalm 32 is any indication of what the experience was like for David over the course of this year, we can ascertain that was anything but pleasant. Again, God will allow us to fall into sin, but he will not allow us to enjoy it. I quote here from from Chuck Swindoll, who writes poignantly, David wasn't relaxing, taking life easy, sipping lemonade on his patio during the aftermath of his adultery. Count on it. He had sleepless nights. He could see his sin written across the ceiling of his room as he tossed and turned in bed. He saw it written across the walls. He saw it on the plate where he tried to choke down his meals. He saw it on the faces of his counselors. He was a miserable husband, an irritable father, a poor leader, a songless composer. He lived a lie, but he couldn't escape the truth. Chuck goes on to write this. A carnal Christian will dance all around and try to tell you everything's fine. Don't press me. I'm really free, really having fun. I'm doing well. You just haven't any idea. But deep down, inside it is there. Everything is empty, hollow, joyless, pointless. A true Christian cannot deny that. True guilt is there, oppressively there, constantly there. You see, a pig can wallow in the mud and enjoy it. But a true sheep of the Lord may willingly jump in the mud, but it will be nothing but torment while they are in it. So with that in mind, we turn our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 12. It opens with six words. Nathan, the God-sized shovel. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan is a prophet. And his ministry surfaces in the book of 2 Samuel during very important times, not only in the narrative of 2 Samuel, but also in David's life. I'll tell you right up front, the ministry of a prophet was tough. You know why? Because when a prophet came, they came to deliver a message that people didn't necessarily want to hear, but they needed to hear. David needed to hear something he's not going to want to hear. But Nathan came, and the messenger, and in the form, or in the presence of a prophet, I want to say from the outset that we need to be thankful for the prophet's and the Nathans that God send into our life. We need them. Okay? They bring messages that maybe we don't want to hear, but what we need to hear. And I'll tell you that they have a pretty thankless ministry, don't they? Because although Nathans in our life are sent from God, it is often God's messengers who receive the lumps. 
but their ministry is invaluable to us. We have to be ever so careful not to surround ourselves with only people who tell us what we want to hear. Y'all, I have lived that spiritual insanity, and I'm forever grateful for the Nathans that God has sent into my life. If we're only surrounding ourselves with sympathizers, we are making the willful decision never to grow. You see, David, he did not need comfort. We've already put together that he was, in, he was suffering, but he didn't need comfort. You see, David didn't need comfort. He needed to be confronted. And there are times where we are suffering, self-induced suffering, because of our sin, and we're wanting to be comforted, but God's not wanting to send us comfort. He is wanting to confront us. But just, instead of just coming out guns a-blazing, Nathan draws David in with a story, a carefully crafted parable, but with a punch. Nathan shares the story of two men. There is one who is rich and the other poor. Now, unbeknownst to David, David is the rich man in the story. Well, as the story goes, there is a poor man who had a little lamb, a lamb that he cherished as if it was one of his own children. The language and the narrative to describe the relationship between the poor man and his lamb is very tender, and it's very loving. Now, in contrast, there was a rich man who had much provision. He had many flocks and many herds. And as the story unfolds, there was a visitor who came to the rich man. And the rich man, instead of taking from his abundant flocks, went and ripped from the loving arms the lamb from the poor man slaughtered it, and fed it to his visitor. The act was cruel and, and lacked compassion. It was unjust and unfair. But interestingly enough, what it is going to do, it is going to trigger in David an extreme and really exaggerated response. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 5 through 6. Then David's anger was greatly kindled. A fire of rage began to burn within David. It was kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. That final statement just dripping in hypocrisy. David, enraged, tells Nathan that the rich man is as good as dead. He will be held accountable to the letter of the law, a fourfold return for the lamb he slaughtered. David was not just enraged because of the crime. He was enraged because the rich man had no pity. That is, he had no compassion on the lowly state of the poor man. There is a spiritual axiom at work in David's reaction. The spiritual axiom is this, that when we are hiding sin in our own lives, we tend to focus on and condemn the sin in other people's lives. Isn't that the truth? It is so much easier to point out the mess in somebody else's life than to actually have to deal with the mess in our own life. 
And if we don't want to deal with the mess in our own lives, we have a tendency to criticize and condemn, to tear down, and to demand exaggerated justice. It is a really peculiar practice when sin-sick people point at other sin-sick people and demand justice. There is nothing done by the rich man in the story that was deserving of the death penalty. Nothing. Yes, the act was cruel. Yes, it was unjust. Yes, it lacked compassion. But according to the law, the man would only have to restore the lamb, but with interest. But here, because we see the irony. The man of the story did not do anything deserving of death, but ironically, David had. David deserved to die for the crimes of adultery and murder, but this is where the trap is set. It was never about the poor man and his lamb. It wasn't about some fictitious rich man. It was always about David. And listen to this. It was always about how David had ripped the beautiful and beloved Bathsheba from the arms of Uriah and had Uriah killed so he could take her as his wife. David was the rich man, and he did deserve death. Nathan confronts David, verses 7 through 9. In one of the more dramatic statements recorded anywhere in the scriptures, the fiery-eyed prophet Nathan points his finger directly at the king. In verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. These are, in my opinion, four of the boldest and bravest words recorded anywhere in the scriptures. Nathan here is confronting the king, a king who in fact had the authority to have Nathan put to death. Incredible courage on display, which will leave us all to wonder, how is David going to respond? Nathan continues, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And listen to this. <laughs> and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. God anointed David when he was the ruddy shepherd boy, the youngest son out of all the sons of Jesse. God delivered him from the murderous hands of Saul, who unjustly time and again tried to have David put to death. God gave David the house of Saul. God gave David the united kingdom of Israel and Judah, with Judah being the crown jewel. And on top of that, God would have given him abundantly and exceedingly more. But in this, we see the insidious nature of our flesh. David forsook everything God had given him so that he could entertain his flesh. David forsook all to entertain his flesh, and it is going to cost him dearly. We can often be robbed of the more that God would desire to give us when we forsake all he has given to entertain our flesh. 
So Nathan then asks a stinging rhetorical question, one that was not expecting a response. 2 Samuel 12, verse 9. Why have you despised? That is to think little of or to ignore or to minimize the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. You see, David was guilty. David had, had broke the law. He coveted. He committed adultery. He murdered. He lied. He blasphemed the name of God. And, he, and you know what? For us, it'd be really easy to look in on David and go, yeah, man, what a sinner. But this portrait is also a mirror. Because as the scriptures record, we all fall short. And I think we're going to take an important detour. This is second service. You all have come spiritually hungry, right? You all come ready to eat? All right. Well, let's turn in our Bibles briefly. Uh, I don't know how briefly, I mean, as long as we spend there. But we're going to turn over to Matthew. Matthew's Gospel. I'm, I apologize. These verses will not be provided behind me. Uh, but let's turn there in our Bibles. Matthew 5 as it relates to the law. And by the way, many of you remember we were in a verse-by-verse -verse study of the Gospel of Matthew. Y'all remember that? Uh, but as the case may be, I, I like to chase shiny things, like squirrel. And so there are times we'll be going through a long-term uh, study, and then I'll, I'll turn to something else. And I think appropriately during this season, we have done some really essential studies, but we'll eventually get back to the Gospel of Matthew, and then I'll find something shiny, and then we'll come back to Matthew and something shiny. You get the point. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 17 Jesus declares, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. The law still stands. And we may look at it and be like, well, you know, I don't think I'm necessarily a lawbreaker. And then Jesus goes, okay, let's peel back the onion of our lives and let's take a look at what we really are. And so Jesus first talks about murder. And I can sit here and I can tell you, I have never plunged a knife into another person's chest and killed them. But then Jesus goes, are you sure about that? Verse 21 you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Have you ever been angry? And I'm not just talking like a little bit, like I'm just a little frustrated. A little, a little bit of friction. No, I'm talking, have you ever been angry? Husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, Sons and daughters, you ever been angry? You ever been to a place, oh, if looks could kill? What did you say to me? Jesus says that's murder. Because murder doesn't start with a knife blade, it begins in the heart. Well, I've never committed adultery. Jesus says, oh, really? 
You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, and we could also insert a woman looking at a man with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her or him and his or her heart. You ever coveted? You ever seen your neighbor pull up in that brand new car? I saw a brand new car this morning. I coveted just a little bit. Had nice leather seats with beautiful stitching. You know what I'm talking about? It was all shiny. And then I looked over at my truck, and it's not so shiny. You see, what I'm getting at here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, let's flip back there. It's very easy to look at David and condemn him. But here's the reality. Before the law, we all stand guilty and condemned. And here, here's what's crazy. Actually, flip back to Matthew chapter 5. There's something else that's just on my head. I, I just can't get it off. Matthew 5, at the end of the chapter, Matthew 5, verse 48. Because Jesus unpacks the law. And if we go through Matthew chapter 5, which we are going to do, uh, verse by verse, you'll see that Jesus just time and again is just hammering the law. And as we read it, we're like, oh, guilty, guilty, guilty. And then Jesus adds this to the cake. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And as we read Matthew 5, we're like, there's no way I could ever be perfect. There's no way any person could be perfect. And Jesus is like, that's the point. None is righteous. No, not one. That is why Christ had to suffer and die on the cross for our sins. His blood had to be shed. God had to be just and the justifier. To be just, he had to pour out his wrath on Jesus through the shed blood that is then covering our sin. He could then be the justifier that in Christ we are made righteous. It is not of us keeping the law, of which none of us can. It is what Christ has done in keeping the law perfectly and dying in our place as a lawbreaker so us as lawbreakers can be treated as sinless. Chew on that one. And forgiven and cleansed. But, back to 2 Samuel 12, when the word of God is set aside— our flesh is given full reign. And we see that in David's life. But I'm, I'm watching that right now in the church. And, and I'm, I'm really troubled by what I'm seeing in the church because the church ha is like setting aside the Word of God and is taking now our spiritual cues and our content from culture. I shared this this last week on the Facebook Live, and, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and, and don't you find it strange how there's like a news story or something gets viral on social media, and then everyone starts using the same language? Isn't that weird? We all start kind of talking the same way, and you share something, that person shares the same thing, and, and all of a sudden we're all sharing the same thing. And the question is, why? Because we're a bunch of lemmings. We're followers. We're sheep. Bah! And we're pulling from the same knowledge source. It's a polluted spring. We have a higher authority, and that authority is the Word of God. 
And we need to be pulling from this knowledge source so that when we are speaking and we are communicating, we are communicating something of a higher authority, of a greater truth. The Word of God becomes our filter. It is our litmus. It is, it is what we look at the world. We do not take the world and then look into the Scriptures. We look to the Scriptures and then interpret the world. This is where we derive our worldview from. We cannot set aside the Word of God because the only other option is our flesh, and that is death. Nathan, not awaiting an answer, lands the final blow. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. I made this statement last week that Uriah was killed by the enemy's arrow, but it is David who was the true archer. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of the Lord. Nothing. Everything David had done was seen by God. We may think we exist in the darkness and the shadows of our inner world, but here's what's reality. The darkness and the shadows of our life are like noonday to the Lord. He sees it all. And it isn't just the Lord who sees it. You know, sometimes we think ourselves pretty crafty and adept at hiding things behind all sorts of masks and mechanisms, but here's what's crazy. People see it. Our families see it. Our friends and co-workers and neighbors, and not only do people see it, but they suffer the consequences of it. And so, so Nathan here shifts now from the crime to the consequences, and this is just straight up the parental formula. Okay? So when our kids commit a crime, as, as good parents— we present the crime and then the consequences. And as good parents, we all can testify that when there is a crime, the, the punishment or the consequences should be commensurate. It should be uh, in line with the crime. So for example, if one of my little ones decides to find a Sharpie hidden somewhere in a junk drawer and goes off and does a Picasso thing on one of our walls, there is a crime. It's beautiful. It's art. But it's wrong. So a punishment or a consequence would, that would not be equal to that would be like, okay, you're grounded for a week. No, the consequence should be here's your bucket of water and soap, and here's your scrub brush, and you're going to go take some elbow grease to that wall, and you're going to remove that piece of art. So there's a crime and there's a consequence. Well, David's crimes were significant, and so will the consequences be. They are severe. Verses 10 through 12 now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you've despised me, and you've taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David's sin was private, but God's discipline and correction was going to be very public. Just a cursory reading of 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18 revealed the grisly details of the unfolding of these painful prophecies. There was going to be hostility and violence in David's house specifically because of David's sin. David's sexual and murderous sin. 
You see what David did? He invited sin into his family, and thus his family were going to be devastated by his sin. Anytime we invite sin into our own lives, we are also inviting it into the lives of our family. Many of us still today walk with a spiritual limp and carry the scars because of mommy or daddy's sin, or aunt and uncle's sin, or brother or sisters, or daughters, or husbands, or wives' sins. Spiritual sickness doesn't just affect the individual. It leaves a path of destruction behind it. And so every now and then, I think it's a good spiritual exercise to stop and turn around and take a look. And if there is a path of destruction behind you, like if everyone around you is saying, ow, there's a good possibility it isn't everyone else. There is something that has gone spiritually wrong. In the very next chapter, David's son Amnon will violate his sister Tamar. Tamar's brother Absalom will rise up and vindicate his sister by killing Amnon. Absalom will very quickly then usher in a rebellion and rip the kingdom out of David's hands. And then in an ensuing battle, Absalom will be killed in a fight, in a battle. The rest of David's years are literally going to be bathed in tears. So back to the question, what will David's response be to all this? And, and just as bold and courageous, I believe, as Nathan confronting the king, I believe we also see a shocking response in David of courage. And it's, it is shocking because of its rarity. You see, when confronted, the typical response is to blame or to deny or be angry or make excuses. But David is going to exemplify the only spiritually healthy response when confronted with sin. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, six words, I have sinned against the Lord. I am guilty. No excuses, no blame, no pointing the finger at somebody else. David squarely points the finger at himself. And really shows himself to be a far greater man than that of the first king of Israel, Saul, who when Saul was confronted with his sin, did anything but own it. But the next statement has always stumbled me a bit. Because like right in the same verse, Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I mean, I'm like, how in the same verse of repentance, how is it that we immediately see and hear these words of grace and forgiveness? It almost seems too easy. It's so easy, it's unfair. All he had to do was repent and be forgiven. No walking across hot coals. No crawling across shards of broken glass. It sounds unfair, but here's the reality, family. Forgiveness is unfair. The cross is unfair. 
Jesus suffered and died for our sins. His shed blood is where we find our cleansing. In fact, one of the more unfair verses of the Bible is 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, that if, if we own them, He is faithful. And here's what's crazy. We're told right up front, if we say we do not have sin, we're a liar. It is a spiritually sick person who walks around and says, I have never needed forgiveness and I don't need forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, but he is just. How can God be just to cleanse us of our sins? Because he poured his wrath out on Jesus. His blood was shed for the payment of our sins, so that when we do sin, that blood is applied to us. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That in any given moment in our day, whether it's a thought, it's an action, it's a behavior, it's a habitual pattern, whatever it is, we confess, we bring our sins to the Lord, and we are cleansed. And yes, it's unfair. I can't, I can't fully explain or understand grace, but here's what I know about grace. It is a limitless well. Grace is a limitless well that we have in Jesus, and it can never be overdrawn. Now, that doesn't mean we go out and try. Yet even though he is forgiven, there is still consequence. Verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. As this chapter continues, we read of the sickness of the child and, and David's intercession for this child and, and then subsequently the child's death. But later in the chapter, we get this lovely little note. And I want to share this lovely little note with you because in this chapter of repentance and forgiveness, we see this incredible portrait of grace. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife can you think of the suffering that Bathsheba has gone through because of the sin of David? And he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And listen to this lovely little note. And the Lord loved him. And not only is that God's sovereign blessing of Solomon, that he would be the next king, which blows the mind of sovereignty, by the way. Like, how could God take something so unjust and bring about something blessed through it? And I'm like, that's the cross. The unjust suffering of Jesus has brought about salvation for those who believe. Something unjust and wicked has brought about something holy and blessed. Solomon would be the next king. And from Solomon, or from David to Solomon, on the way through the genealogy would be Jesus, who rises above, above out of all of history and above all lives. He is set apart. But I believe that this was also an expression of love for David, because listen to this special note that the Lord sent to David. Verse 25, And God sent a message by who? Nathan the prophet 
So he called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. This is the only time in the scriptures that Solomon is called Jedediah. It is the name that means God loves. And it is this passage where we derive the name of our fourth-born son, Jedediah. God loves. Now, when our little God loves was born, he was born with a perfect birthmark of a heart on his leg. It was such a blessing to both myself and my wife. And we felt like God was saying to us, undeserved, unworthy, but you were loved. That little birthmark hung around for a few weeks, maybe a couple months, but then it disappeared because we believe that message was just for us. And I believe that this message was for David. David, yes, you have sinned. Yes, you have fallen. Yes, you have done wicked things, but I have forgiven you. I love you, David. You are forgiven, Jedediah. <laughs> but I do not want to move too quickly from this chapter. In fact, uh, I want us to not move too quickly past verse 13. Those six words that we've already read, I have sinned against the Lord, they do not tell the whole story. They're, in fact, I mean, they do tell the whole story, but they're more of like a summary statement. In fact, it is Psalm 51 that tells the whole story, not just David's story, but our story of our fallenness and our cleansing through Christ. And the pathway back to restored relationship. And so next week, we are going to unfold Psalm 51, the psalm of repentance and the pathway of restoration of relationship. And that will be where we turn our attention next week. But before we get there, a few applications. And we're about to go back out into the world. Do y'all know that? Y'all ready for that? I'm not quite ready yet. <laughs> The first application is the joyless existence. I want to stress there is no true spiritual joy in the Lord when we are walking in or hiding sin. We may laugh. We may get distracted. We may think time will pass and everything's all good, but the guilt and the conviction will not subside in the heart of a true Christ follower. Because if we are the Lord's, we're never going to get comfortable with hidden sin. We may wallow in the mud. We may get stuck in the mud. We may not know how to get out of the mud, but we are going to recognize that we are in mud. And it ain't where we're supposed to be. The application is pretty simple. We got to bring it to the light. And here's what's crazy. Very rarely are we in something or stuck in something that we don't have some inkling of how to get out of. Like, we know that we need to seek for help. Like, we know we need to reach out. We kind of know the pathway, but we lack the willingness. You know, it's a willingness to say, hey, look, I've, I've sinned. It's a willingness to walk up to somebody and be like, hey, by the way, what I said yesterday, the way I talked to you, the way I treated you, that was wrong, and I asked you for forgiveness, how can I make that right? This stuff should eat at us. It should bother us. And again, it's not that we don't have an inkling of what to do. It's just that we don't have necessarily the willingness to follow through. And so we just have to ask God, please make me willing to take any step necessary. Because I don't want to be in the mud no more. Uh, secondly, when God sends a Nathan, <laughs> 
We need Nathans in our life. They are the God-sized shovels. We need those people who can walk up, a, up to us and, and tell us the hard truth. Not necessarily what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. And by the way, we don't get to pick our Nathans. Sometimes we're like, uh, that can be my Nathan, but not that one. You know, sometimes God sends my wife to be my Nathan. You want to know how receptive I am to that? But you know what's crazy? God and his supernatural sovereignty has seen fit to put me together with a godly woman who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And there are times where she will come to me and she will speak words of wisdom to me. And I am a ma made a better man because of that. You know, there are times where the Nathans in our life will be a friend or a mentor or a caring fellow Christian, but thank God for them because they serve an important and valuable ministry. And when we can listen and we fight the temptation of blame and denial and anger and excuses, we may just grow. Thank God for the Nathans in our lives. It's a thankless job, by the way, but it's a good one. And I just want to say, some of us may be sitting here today going, oh, I'm that God-sized shovel. Man, I can't wait. I'm getting out of here. I got some digging to do. Honey, we need to talk. I want to stress, if you feel like God is calling you to confront somebody, then you pray long and hard. And if it is truly of the Lord, you do it in grace. You don't come out guns a-blazing. You do it with the spirit of meekness and in a recognition that you yourself struggle with the same stuff. If you find yourself elevating yourself over another human being, you're not a Nathan. If you see yourself condemning another person, you're not a Nathan. You need a Nathan. And if you're hiding something in your life and you're condemning somebody else, you are operating in that spiritual axiom. But if you truly do have a heart for that person and God is leading you to do it, do it with the spirit of grace. The same grace that you would request. Now, finally, I want to share a personal story. Jedediah. Prior to my father being incarcerated for the last time, I called him. My father was never a good man. He was cruel and violent and sick. I cannot remember one positive or good memory from my childhood or my early adult life. But here's what's crazy is God broke my heart for the gospel. God broke my heart for my father. You see what happens when God breaks our heart for the true depth of our own brokenness and the unmerited grace and favor that is poured out on us. God breaks our hearts for the people that break his heart. In one of our final conversations, I lavished the love of Jesus on him, and he began to sob. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. To which I was like, Dad, none of us do. And he said, God can't forgive me. And some of you may be sitting here today and you're like, Pastor, you have no idea what I've done. Yes, God's grace and forgiveness for other people, but I am 
there's no way. There's no way he could forgive me. It is Christ. It is Christ who has suffered and died. It is Christ whose blood was shed. It is his death for our death. It is his resurrection for our life. There is no life so far gone that he cannot save or forgive. I shared with my father the love of Jesus and the gospel. And I had the privilege of leading my father to Christ. A year and a half later, I got a call from the chaplain at the prison. My father had an inoperable brain tumor. He had fallen, hit it in his head, and he was in a coma, and there was no brain function left. And the chaplain was requesting permission to remove my father from life support. I said, not till I get there. And so I drove through the night, like, uh, being fueled by Red Bulls and Pringles. You ever lived on that sustenance? Wow. And I got to that hospital about six in the morning, and there was my father, shackled to a hospital bed, surrounded by guards. Consequences. But for the next day and a half, I sat bedside with him, applying cold compresses to his head, loving on him, praying with him. And I had the high honor of being with him as he was ushered from this life into the presence of the Lord. And as my father passed from this life into the next, he was transformed. And that when I pass from this life to the next, I will meet a fully healed John J. Carroll. And he will meet for the very first time a fully healed Christopher James Carroll. And for eternity, we will bow before the throne in worship of a God whose grace and mercy knows no bounds. That, my family, is Jedediah. And that is why I can tell you without any hesitation, you are loved. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for our time together. We thank you for your scriptures. And Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm reminded of when you pulled the disciples aside for a time of rest, and all of a sudden the crowd showed up, and you had compassion, and you taught, and you set out to feed them, and, and you turned to the disciples, and you, you asked them to feed, and they had these meager little rations of five loaves and two fish. But in your hands, they were blessed, and they were broken, and they provided for everyone, and everyone was satisfied. Lord Jesus, I present to you my meager rations, and I pray that through these meager rations, you have broken them and blessed them, and that we as a church have been nourished. I pray that we are satisfied by you, Lord Jesus, in your precious word. If you have not received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, please listen. The Lord Jesus died on the cross for your sins. 
His blood was shed. The Bible declares that none is righteous, no, not one. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory. All of us are guilty and stand condemned. That is why Jesus was condemned for you. So that through faith in his work on the cross, you can be forgiven. Jesus died for you. He was buried and he is risen. If you desire this morning to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, in the quietness of your heart, tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I am unworthy of your goodness and your kindness, but I believe. I ask for forgiveness for my sins. I believe that you suffered and died for them on the cross, that you were buried and you have risen. Jesus, save my life. If that is truly your heart's prayer, you have, you have just breathed out, but your very next breath has been the breath of eternity. You have been cleansed of your sin. The Holy Spirit has come into your life. You are now a new creation. You woke up this morning separated by, from God because of sin. You will lay your head down on your pillow tonight alive in Christ. Welcome to the family of God. Jedediah, you are loved. We worship you, Lord Jesus, and we anticipate the day of being in your presence. And while we wait, we enjoy your presence here in your church. We love you. In your precious name we pray.